You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 6th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. This is the first show we're recording in 2016. That's correct. Yeah. In the new year. I like even-numbered years better than odd-numbered yeah. years. Like Star Trek yes. movies. Why yeah. is that? It's just it's part of my obsessive Chinese fortune. Yeah. Oh. What about odd-numbered years that fall on a five? That's fine. Those are Because those feel more balanced. Yeah. Fives are sense. good, and even numbers are good, but the... You know the uh, non-divisible odd numbers. I don't like them. Ooh, next year's going to be reason. Seven. Oh, yeah, 2017. Yeah. Oh. Uh, 17. Oh my god, I'm sorry. Uh. So you feel kind of weird all year. Like what happened? It's a prime number. Yeah. Every time, 30 years ago, when they were making uh, science fiction books and movies and things, they they seem to like pick 2017 as this awful post-apocalyptic kind of year. Yeah, so that's had, true. It's a little off. They? Oh, 2017. This feels a little off. Is it only when you write it, Steve? Like when you have to like fill out a check? Everything. It's just. You know, I, I have a, a from my little res, residual number like OCD from my childhood. Like I, yeah. I had a little completion OCD and balance OCD. You know, Ooh, things had to be would, balanced. You would struggle, like really? I, I didn't know that, pierced. Steve. Yeah. I have my lip pierced on the left side. I have tattoos on my right arm. Like, would that freak you out? No, no. I mean, at first of all, it was like never. It was never. <laughs> debilitating. You know, debilitating. It was just always gotcha. a little mental game I played with myself. But like I really like had to complete sequences, and you know I pretty much outgrew it. But I still have a, <laughs> I still like will always set my thermo my thermostat to even number temperatures. Huh. That's, yeah, I don't do that. But <laughs> I, I've got one Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit or Celsius. Fahrenheit. So that's part of why I like Fahrenheit. I can set it to seventy two, seventy one. Who the hell would set their thermometer to seventy one? Yeah. Only an insane cycle. <laughs> I've got one. I've got one. Sometimes I've noticed this only a few times, but it's definitely there. If I, if I'm walking and I step on something like on my right foot that my right foot can feel, like a pebble that is Twig. really discernible, I feel like I've got to do it on my left foot too. Yeah, it's the same to kind, kind of thing. Of, right? Same kind of thing. Yeah. It's not bad. It's only happened really like a bunch, you know, a few times. Not a it's lot. It's only happened a bunch. Of times. <laughs> it only it's happens happened every a few other day. Times. <laughs> no, but I, I've noticed. I was like, "Damn, I feel the need to, to uh, balance this, <laughs> even that, even that thing out." I have something that'll make you guys feel better. Okay, this might set you straight. Uh, Oculus Rift, the new version, just came out for pre-order. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh boy, does this one make you puke? Well, it's. Uh, it's a software. That's, yeah. I've, I've that's actually an up, that's an upgrade feature. I've actually used an Oculus that um, with really good software that made me I felt fine in it, which was crazy because I puke with every VR headset. And how much is it? It's like six hundred bucks. I it's, think. Yeah, it's six hundred. They ship in March. That's too high. Yeah, um, that's a. I mean, I get that that's expensive and not everybody can afford it totally, but for what it is, I think that's a good price. I still, I'm still wondering if the like VR headsets are ever going to take off as a technology. 
I think yeah. they're about to with Oculus. Yeah, but you wonder, like, are they really going to solve you know, the vertigo problem sufficiently that it's going to be widely adopted, or is it just never going to find a niche? I wonder. Well, Steve, Kara just said that it pretty much went away with the latest. Yeah, one, with right? her, that's anecdotal. I want to know like, yeah. what the percentage. You'd have to is. see with more people, and also a lot of it has to do with software. So what sucks is that people get like cold feet because they'll try it once and they'll be like, "Oh, this isn't very good," because maybe Turned they're not off. using like Premiere software. And then they may not want to try it again. But I think gaming is definitely yeah. going to go in this direction. We're already seeing it in operating suites. I think we're seeing it in a lot of places. The issue up to this point was that we didn't have good hardware. Yeah. And and hmm. up until now, we've only seen Gear VR. Like we've only seen the Oculus as a developer kit. But now you can actually purchase the real thing. Yeah, so we'll well, yeah, we'll have to say I'm very curious to see how good it is, how good the experience is, because I get I get motion sickness, so me too. If, yeah, I I would be a good test if I if it makes me if it, I could do it without feeling sick. I sometimes get if I like sit too close to my large computer monitor, I can get vertigo from like playing first person shooters, you know. Yeah, wow. and I'll get sick if I read like one text message in a car. Yeah, yeah, me too. Oh, like, yeah, I cannot yeah. reading in the, car, in the car. Reading in the car yeah. is bad. Oh my god, you guys are kind of messed up. Yep. So. <laughs> well, Steve, I think it's encouraging though that that Kara, who who would get you know nauseated or whatever vertigo every time, did try a device where it didn't happen. So that's encouraging for someone who seems fairly sensitive. Yeah, yeah I definitely recommend trying it. Try it. Try it. Try it with Oculus if you get a chance. If you're going someplace where someone has one, but make sure that you do your research and that you get really good software that you're not just trying it with because it doesn't matter how good the hardware is if the software sucks. All right. Well, we got a great show for you this week. We're going to start off with a forgotten superhero of science, Bob. Yeah, guys. Uh, for this week's superheroes of science, I am covering Dr. Hadia Nicole Green, who was an inspirational young physicist who received $1.1 million grant to explore her breakthrough in treating cancer with lasers and nanoparticles. Wait a minute. She's a physicist who's studying and treating cancer? Yes, yes. Interesting uh, meshing there. Um, I, I, I like the scientist. I wanted to cover someone who basically wasn't dead or already past uh, the prime of her or his uh, career, but someone who is impressive and already made, you know, potentially game-changing advances. And I also love that she realizes her power to inspire people who aren't typically pushed into uh, STEM careers. And, uh, well, she is, after all, uh, one of less than 100 black female physicists in the entire U.S., and uh, to that end, she almost never turns down speaking enga engagement requests. She said, I accept it because I feel like it's a responsibility. I don't feel like I have the luxury to say I'm too busy. So she really takes um, seriously the, uh, this idea that she could be a, a big inspiration to people who, do, who don't you know, normally go into those careers. And she has been busy. She came up with uh, her treatment to help people who have exhausted modern uh, chemo treatments and have been sent home after the treatments essentially to die. To die. There's really nothing more that modern medicine can do for these people. And uh, her patent-pending treatment uses nanoparticles that fluoresce and lasers that heat them up. And uh, this technique has been tried before. I think we may have even talked about them uh, in the past. But she seems to have made some uh, significant headway against some of the major problems, such as delivering the nanoparticles to the to the cancer cells, uh, the cells that you want to target, and proving that it works in animals. But it's still experimental in humans. 
Yes, it's a, yes, but so but so promising that she. I mean, a million dollar grant. Uh, somebody saw some some promise in what what she's done. Um, so she seems to have come farther with this specific technique than than anyone else has. Uh, the real cool thing is that the particles are harmless by themselves. You could swallow them and walk away, no problem. The lasers are harmless as well. You shoot one right through your head, no problem. But together, together they can destroy whatever they're near. So they, they, they're harmless apart and together they can do some amazing things or they, they appear to. And, uh, I have a lot of hope for, for this technique. I've been, ta- I've been thinking about this specific technique for getting rid of tumors for many years and it just always frustrated me. Like, damn, this, this just seems like something that shouldn't be that much of a problem. And it, it's, yeah, very, the idea is great. A, the idea is fantastic, yeah. but it's, you know, technically very challenging. Yeah. Like, yes, like these nanoparticles have to be taken up, uh, just by, uh, cancer cells. So that's right. Think about it. So that's apparently one of the sticking points, and it definitely was. So remember, Dr. Hadia Nicole Green, mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing near-infrared photothermal nanotherapy-induced tumor aggression. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think it's a good idea to highlight a, a young scientist at the beginning of her career. That's great. Definitely. All right. Well, let's go on to some news items. This first one is fun. The Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, they've been busy recently. Yeah. They've I'm actually proud Yeah, I'm proud of them. They've actually really been trying they, to Yeah, they they grew a pair. Yeah, to mm-hmm. to uh <laughs> clamp down on you know, to do their job, to to clamp down on pseudoscience. <laughs> yeah. oh, when you put it that way. <laughs> well, I mean, they are overwhelmed, I have to say they are overwhelmed. They don't have the resources to take on. So they have to pick and choose very carefully. Well, mm-hmm. they have chosen to take on the company Lumosity, which is Ooh. something that I've written about in the past. They recently had a judgment against the company. They, I guess they have a, um, a panel and that they, they voted four to zero to, to sanction the company for making false and misleading claims. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're not aware, Lumosity is a product. The company is Lumos Labs. Their product is Lumosity. You've probably seen it's advertised. It's advertised everywhere. In fact, on a lot of podcasts, but not ours because we would never, never <laughs> advertise them. I think they've asked me before. They claim to have brain training games, scientifically formulated games to train your brain to enhance memory, focus, mental flexibility, and even perhaps stave off dementia. Well, it turns mm-hmm. out that the FTC has concluded that those claims are insufficiently based in science. Uh, they were actually fined $50 million, but Jeez. were allowed to settle for $2 million, ah. which for a company that size is like the cost of doing business. You know, it's a slap on the wrist, but it's in addition to paying $2 million, they have to stop making the claims and they have to make it easy for customers who are having automatically renewed subscription to end their subscription. Mm-hmm. But I hope this is like putting the word out to, because this is not the only company with products making brain training claims that uh, these claims are not science based and are and they're not allowed. So uh, maybe they're like making an example out of the biggest one, out of Lumosity for the industry, you know. So what do you think that they're going to say to sell their product now? Yeah, they're just going to be way more and more wishy-washy. You know, it's going to be like, this is just fun. Yeah, and, and a lot of times what companies will do, and I think this is deliberate. This is like their 
I don't I mean I don't know that any particular company does this deliberately, but I see it so often. To me, it seems as if this is now like the game plan where you create a market by making claims that are not supported by science. Eventually, the FTC or whoever gets around to slopping you on the wrist. You're like, oh, "Okay, okay, we'll stop making those claims." But you've already created the market. Now you don't have to make the claims anymore. You know, you could you could get yeah. away by with be making just the momentum you built up. Yeah, yeah. You, you've already created the the market. You've already created the belief in you know the the function of your product. Now you just sell the brand. You've already created the brand. Now you just sell it. Yeah. So I think Lumosity is probably going to just do that. And I went to their website, and it's like there's no claims on the website. It's just like sign up and start playing the games, and we'll do an assessment. You know, but really, yeah. But they have lots of ads, so it depends on whether or not they're going to pull back on their ads, you know. So here's the thing. Let me just give some background on the actual science. So it's, there's actually a very interesting question, and it's not necessarily one that you would know the answer to a priori. It's not implausible. The notion is that if you engage in some learning activity, that you develop that part of your brain, and then you get better at um, doing related tasks. Like, for example, if you do a memory task, your memory gets better. If you, if you do a verbal task, your language skills get better. That, that's the basic idea. You're training your brain in the area of the, of the task that you're learning how to do. But the question is, how generalizable or how transferable are skills that you learn practicing a specific task? And there's, you know, a spectrum of, of possibility from n- not at all, meaning that if you play Sudoku, you get better at Sudoku, Sudoku. and nothing yeah. else to very generalizable. Whereas like, when you play Sudoku, you get smarter, you know, you get better at everything cognitively. And that's assuming that playing Sudoku will make you better at even playing Sudoku. Well, it does. I mean, pretty much anything that you do, you'll get better at that thing. That's pretty universal. The, the answer is very close to the narrow end of the spectrum where you get better at playing Sudoku and nothing else. Mm. Uh, it, the, the skills don't seem to be very transferable. And of course, that's the whole premise of Lumosity is that you play their scientifically formulated game and then you get better memory or better focus or whatever. Other, yeah. But just the evidence. Mental flexibility. Evidence yeah. just doesn't support it. You know, it really seems like there's not a lot of transferability in these skills. There was one, I think, very instructive study, well controlled, that was done in 2010, where the researchers um, had three arms. Uh, they they had t- three arm researchers. Yep. <laughs> the study had three arms. Zaphod! Freaks. Freaks. Two arms were different types of of games that were designed to enhance specific skills. And the third arm, they just gave them specific facts to look up on the internet. Like what's the capital of Assyria, whatever. And then after doing that for the same number of hours, they tested their cognitive abilities at baseline and then later. And they all increased exactly the same amount. There was no difference between the three. So doing any cognitive task either had no benefit or had the same benefit. And the slight improvement they had was probably just the background learning effect or training effect. Whenever you repeatedly test somebody, they're always going to get better because they're better at the test that you're giving them. You know, mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. always have to have a control. If there's no control, you, these results are uninterpretable. And so in this research, we see lots of studies that don't really have a lot of good controls. 
And then there's a few studies which do have good controls, and they generally show that there's not much of a specific a transferable or generalizable advantage to doing any particular kind of game. So are they basing – did they base their claims on studies and yeah, try I to think, sort of pull one over? I think they don't care. You know what I mean? It's like one of these things. They have a plausible story to tell. It's marketable, and they go with it. You know, they're not really trying to figure out, does this really, really work? What does the re- What does the evidence really support? Uh, they have a plausible narrative that they could say is science based, but it's, you know, it's just the bottom line is it's not based on science. So there may be a couple exceptions to this notion that skills from one task are not transferable generally to other tasks, even related ones. And that is with visual processing and with task switching. So there, there is a study which shows there have been several studies now actually that are looking at playing video games. And especially like first-person shooters or first-person video games where you are, from your perspective, you're navigating through a virtual world and you're Mm -hmm. interacting with things in the world, that that seems to enhance visual processing for that kind of thing. And that improves your ability to navigate in other virtual environments and maybe even in the real world. And then the one specific thing that's been studied is looking at surgeons who operate with virtual reality like endoscopy using a little camera. And in in fact, they got better at doing Mm -hmm. endoscopic surgery after playing first-person shooters. That seemed transferable. So there, there, maybe with visual processing, there is sort of a transferable or generalizable skill set. And the other one is when you train your frontal lobes, when you do task switching things, executive function, your executive function gets better. And that's a very generalizable skill to begin with, you know, so then it makes you better at, you know, more mentally flexible where you could switch your tasks better or manage your attention better. So those things, there's, I think those are still open questions, but the the evidence so far says maybe those are more gen- generic skills anyway and and that they may benefit, you know, be, be more transferable. Having said that, I don't think there are any quote-unquote scientifically designed games out there that are better than any other games. The studies that showed these transferable effects were using off-the-shelf first-person shooters, you know, not scientifically designed games for anything. The research is very complicated. There's so many sub-questions, so many ways you can you could measure and look at these questions. But I think what we have so far boils down to some very simple rules, and that is – There is an advantage to being mentally active. Being mentally active is better than being mentally inactive, which is the same. You could say the same thing for physical activity, right? Being physically active is better than being physically inactive. But it doesn't seem to matter what specific mental task you're doing. Just do anything. It's probably better to do a variety of things than one thing. And it's probably better to do novel things, things you haven't done before than things that you've done for a long time. But what specific things you do doesn't seem to matter. And there certainly is no justification for spending money on specific games or products that claim to be scientifically designed to train your brain. That's bullshit. Just <laughs> be, meant in, be engaged, be mentally active, have fun, and do different things. That, Steve, that's the bottom line. What about reading? Yeah, what about I, it? I mean, are there stuff like that's not that novel? I guess the words you're reading are novel, but that is one <laughs> specific ha um, task that you know kind yeah. of requires the same thing. Like the visual processing is the same regardless. And is it not true that one of the best ways to 
remain kind of mentally active is to read a lot. Yeah, reading is a very engaging, good mental activity. But if you've if you've been an active reader, you know, your whole life, mm-hmm. you probably are not getting as much benefit out of it as somebody who is I see. wasn't as much a reader and now is reading as much. And you you know, the evidence suggests again, I don't think that we're at the point where we could say this is settled or definitive, but we could say that the evidence suggests that if if you've never done crossword puzzles before, do some crossword puzzles. If you've never done number puzzles, do number puzzles. If you've never played video games, there actually is some advantage to playing video games in terms of engaging yourself mentally. The other thing is there may, there, there's, there's something about video games that, that are ones that are designed for fun, you know, not to train your brain or anything. But the one thing that's interesting about video games is that the way they evolved is they are designed to get more difficult as you get better. So they keep yeah, their difficulty. Adaptive. Yeah, they're adaptive. Just to, to, they're adaptive to keep the game fun and engaging. So they, they're just always a little bit more difficult than where your current skill level is. And that's perfect. That's perfect for engaging your cognitive activity. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, again, they weren't designed that way to be good for your brain. It is just to be fun and to keep you on the hook, you know, to keep you playing. By always getting, you know, getting more difficult as you improve your skill. So, Steve, uh, the, I, I'm hearing you say, though, having a variety of tasks that are different is healthy for your brain. Yes, that's what I think that's what the research shows. That's a, and that's a pretty basic claim that it doesn't matter what you do. Like if you've never played a musical instrument before, take up a musical instrument that would engage an entirely new part of your brain that maybe you haven't really mm-hmm. fully engaged in the past. Um, just do something new, do something different. And there's actually evidence that that may, in fact, reduce your risk for Alzheimer's disease. You know, then the reason oh. behind that is when you're trying to engage with new pathways in your brain, it might actually stimulate your neural stem cells to form new pathways or to make more dendritic connections. You know, there actually may be a biological re- effect from like challenging yourself with new types of cognitive tasks that you haven't done before. Uh, so yeah, so that's, but you don't have to pay a dime for any of that. Just do new stuff, do what's fun. Don't buy, don't believe the hype. Don't believe the brain training hype. I think the very term brain training is, is deceptive. Yeah. You're not training your brain. Mm -hmm. You're learning and practicing. Well, and I love that you say learning because if you remember the earlier, and maybe they still do it or maybe they can't now after this ruling, but used to be you'd see a commercial for Lumosity and it would be like, we use the principles of neuroplasticity. Yeah. They loved yeah. using that word, which is such a pseudoscience move, right? Is to use like <laughs> big, important sounding science words. And every time I saw it, all I could think was like, you mean learning? You mean learning? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In good old fashioned learning. And it works, right? Neuroplasticity. It yeah, works. that's, that's, that's the inherent deceptive marketing, I think, of these products. <laughs> yeah. It's neuro, neuro pseudoscience is what it is. And, and, but Steve though, and Kara, but neuroplasticity, I mean, that's a specific term. It's not, it's not really a hundred percent, you know, uh, equate with the, with learning, right? It, there's also, no, but the way they're meaning. using it does. Okay, the way they're right. using it yeah. does. But yeah, it could also apply to things like recovering after a stroke. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's more like the physical, like the architectural changes or the, the physiological changes as a, opposed to when we think of learning, we think of that more as a, I guess, a psychological. Yeah, but learning process. does involve making new dendritic connections For and whatever. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. it is that it's, it's using neuroplasticity in a generic sense to replace 
the concept of learning. That's right. why it's deceptive. They're not using it in a specific sense, like something that happens after an injury where the brain mm. is trying to form new pathways to replace the damaged ones. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it just it gives it more of a mystique of like something interesting and neuroscientific happening as opposed to good old-fashioned practice and learning. But that's what the evidence shows is that it's practice and learning and only in really the narrow thing that you're doing, not really transferable in any kind of generic sense. All right, let's move on. Uh, Kara, you're going to tell us about really picky eaters. I am. Yeah, I'm, I was interested. I came across this article in Scientific American um, talking about this idea of picky eating and how there's actually diagnostic criteria for this. You can be diagnosed as a picky eater. And that actually came about almost two years ago now, actually about a year and a half ago. I think it was May of 2013 when the new Diagnostic and Statistical Manual was published. So the DSM, which is what psychologists, psychiatrists, and some other kind of medical and uh, neuro professionals use to diagnose patients, uh, kind of like the shrink's Bible, as we often call it. When I was in school, we were studying from the DSM-4-TR text revision. Now uh, we're up to the DSM-5, and there are a bunch of new categories in the DSM-5, one of which is called avoidant slash restrictive food intake disorder, or ARFID. And the article that I read was really about how people aren't using the diagnosis. It's been around for two years, but most pediatricians still don't understand it. They don't know much about it. And it's not really being used, even though these scientists say that they think that it should be because it kind of focuses on a very specific disorder that's often misdiagnosed. And I think it's interesting because when I was first reading this, I was like, I have that, <laughs> but I don't think I actually have this. Um, it, it's common in young people and um, or it's more common in young people. It's not common at all, but it's more common in young people. And it specifically refers to a type of food disorder where individuals are overly picky or they have a hard time with food of, let's say, a certain texture, a certain color, a certain shape. And what they notice is that sometimes these young people come into the pediatrician's office with failure to thrive. So you have these young kids who are not making weight for their age. They're not gaining weight as quickly as they should be. and But they don't have body image issues. So it's mm -hmm. not like anorexia. It's not like, well, I guess anorexia would be the the most um, misdiagnosed of the traditional eating disorders because people with anorexia nervosa simply do not eat. It's not like bulimia or bin per, uh, binge purge disorder. They do not eat. But the motivation there is often about body image. Whereas with a lot of these kids, it's really about, I don't want that food. Mm -hmm. Either I don't like it, it feels weird in my mouth, or I'm afraid to eat mm -hmm. it. Now, um, the researchers did talk about some earlier experiences that can preempt a diagnosis of ARFID, like having an intense choking episode as a young person or some sort of uh, stressful event surrounding eating food. And they also talked about just general anxiety and depression issues that young people deal with, which can actually surround food. And honestly, just how disruptive to somebody's life this kind of disorder can be. So a couple interesting kind of factoids about it. It's still more common in girls, even uh, uh, similar to most eating disorders. They're more common in girls. But unlike 
traditional eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, you actually see see more boys getting diagnosed with it. So even though it's a 70-30 split right now, about 70% girls, 30% boys, that's a higher percentage of boys than what you would see in anorexia nervosa. Um, And the average time to diagnosis on this is around 33 months. So a lot of times these kids are living. Yeah, for over two years. years. Yeah, feeling really sick and really struggling and not knowing what to do about it. What's interesting is that uh, I can already anticipate sort of the anti-psychiatry response to something like this. They typically say, like, all kids are picky. You're Now you're just medicalizing a normal thing, you know, that, you know, mm-hmm. kids being picky eaters. But the, by definition, a disorder is when something like this gets to the point where it's a problem, where it's not just you know, the normal range of pickiness that kids go through. Most kids will go through a phase where they like their peas can't touch the meat or whatever. They have, they have like little uh, neurotic things with food, but like they say, they're not thriving. They're actually not maintaining their weight. They're not growing. They're physically being harmed by lack of nutrition because their, their, their pickiness is getting in the way of them eating, getting enough nutrition. Then Mm -hmm. it becomes, it rises to the level of, a disorder. It's like, yeah, all kids are fidgety, but not all kids have ADHD. ADHD is when it gets to a point where it actually starts to interfere with their ability to function in life. That's when it becomes a disorder. I worked for a neuropsychologist when I was in um, graduate school, and I remember seeing a child who actually was diagnosed with autism. So I'm not sure if this would be a comorbid diagnosis, because of course, this diagnosis didn't exist back then, or if it would be something more um, where this kind of eating behavior is an offshoot of that autism, like a symptom of the autism. But he could only eat foods that were square. Like he was very specific about that. And it was really frustrating for his mother because if something was too large and he took a bite out of it, it was no longer square and he wouldn't finish it. So everything had to be bite sized. It was this terrible. I know it was really difficult for everybody. It was difficult for him, too. I mean, that's the frustrating thing. He didn't want it to be that way. Well, he couldn't really verbalize that. But you could tell how frustrated he was every time he sat down to eat. And so I think that this is an interesting diagnosis, one that probably does accompany some anxiety disorders or maybe some other childhood developmental disorders, but one that... It's good to see that kids hopefully now will have a system in place where they won't slip through the cracks because prior Mm -hmm. to this, an anorexia diagnosis just wouldn't be sufficient. It's amazing all the different subtle and nuanced ways in which our brains can malfunction. Mm -hmm. I have to eat square food, you know. Wow. (laughs) We have a complicated complicated organ. It fails in complicated ways. It really does. My my temperature has to be set to even numbers. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a weird world. Bob, I understand that we are about to get some new elements on the periodic table. The International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, or IUPAC, or I call it IUPAC. I'm not sure how they actually say that. They have announced final confirmation of four new chemical elements, which will complete the seventh row or period of the periodic table. So it's been verified. It's it's a, almost a done deal. So as of now, they've got temporary names. They don't have the official names. So element 113 is ununtrium. ununtrium. Uh, element 115 is un, unpentium. I don't like these names. 
Um, the 117 is un un septium and 118 is un un octium. Octium. Right. Yeah, I yeah, guess right that one. And they each have their own <clears throat> three-letter abbreviations as well. Uh, the, now, the numbers themselves, 113, 115, etc., those are the atomic numbers, of course, uh, uh, of the element yeah, and the, the number of protons in the nucleus. And uh, these are all super heavy elements, meaning that they have at least 104 protons. And they are not found in nature. Uh, now, discovering these was, of course, a big pain in the ass, especially at this level of maturity of, of the periodic table. Uh, you're not going to find these in, your, in the backyard, of course. Uh, the particles uh, were created by hurling less massive particles um, at each other at relativistic speeds. And on the rarest of occasions, they just happen uh, – one will just happen to fuse into a new super heavy particle. Uh, but they decay in an instant uh, very, very fast, um, microseconds, milliseconds. Picosecond. No, not that fast. And they decay <laughs> into uh, into less massive uh, daughter daughter particles. So Aww. once that's done, the researchers then have to have to pour through the data and not only get very very lucky and find a new element, um, but they also need absolute confidence uh, that the that the identity of its daughter particles, uh, which are often previously unknown uh, isotopes, they've got to find out what they are as well. And then when you follow the chain up towards uh, the new particle, you, there, there could be little doubt about your conclusion. So the IUPAC then needs to go through these uh, painstakingly detailed findings to verify that your your logic chain makes sense and that you've really found a brand new element, which is essentially what they did uh, most recently. So now uh, the hope is that in 2016, they'll have the, the official names. And uh, according to the international guidelines, the new elements can be named after several things. It could be a mythological concept. It could be a mineral. It could be a property or a scientist or a place or country. Those are generally uh, what they use. Then the proposed names and their symbols uh, will then be vetted by the Inorganic Chemistries Division of IUPAC uh, to make sure they're consistent to identify prior uh, possible uh, historic uses and uh, also to check that it's translatable into other languages. Um, I, I guess oh they do gosh. that to make sure that you didn't just call your particle shit or pecker in, in another language because that would not be cool. <laughs> and they would probably make you change that if you did. Um, they will then – then the next step is to present uh, to the public uh, for public review for about five months. I'm, I'm not sure – um, how well, how, you know, how much is reviewed and what anyone could say if they had a problem with it, but it's out there for five months, kind of like the, uh, the demolition plans for the planet Earth on that weird planet in the basement that nobody knows how to get to, uh, perhaps. But then <laughs> finally a decision is made, uh, by the highest body of the IUPAC and it's called the Jedi Council. Wait, no, it's not the Jedi Council. It's called, it's just called the Council. Um, Ooh, the, the, the highest council. level. Ooh, and uh, sounds yes. secret and, and then the new official periodic table of elements can finally be put into all the textbooks so that's that's what's going to happen so and so that's all really cool and interesting but for me anyway the, the super heavy elephant in the room for all of this is it points <laughs> to the so-called island of stability which to me is uh what this these advances are kind of stepping towards um now you'll never see these super these new super heavy heavy elements that i've been talking about uh, or you'll never be able to actually hold any of it they, they last yeah they last for you know, microseconds thousands of or millions of a second uh, before they disappear. Uh, and scientists call this uh, the sea of instability, uh, which becomes increasingly turbulent as atoms get bigger and bigger towards the bottom of the, uh, the periodic table. Uh, but since the 50s, though, I wasn't quite aware of this. This is fascinating to me. Since the 50s, it's been theorized that protons and neutrons form shells in the nucleus just like 
electrons form shells around the nucleus. So if all the proton shells are filled, uh, then that number of protons is called the magic number because it should offer enhanced stability and therefore survive far longer. If the neutron shells are filled as well, it's called doubly magic and should also be even more stable than just the singly magic uh, proton shells. So these magic numbers of protons and neutrons then could provide one or more islands of stability within this sea of instability, producing these long-lived elements uh, that could potentially last for minutes or days, or some theories predict millions of years. The properties of these elements could then actually be tested and, and who knows, we could potentially make objects out of them with properties that could seem like magic to us. Uh, just amazing things that we would never even think that, that matter could even do. Um, and then that, of course, would, uh, would give the magic numbers even more meaning. So that's always been my hope that we, that in my lifetime, they f- do find these islands of stability and they find, they could actually make something that will last for a very, very long time and actually make, you know, build it up test the properties they could infer what the properties are by by you know by what column they're in so we would know that say a certain magic number maybe it might have been 114 if it uh if they got that just right it could have it could be like lead but but maybe a very very uh heavy example of lead i'm not sure but it depends so but because these new super heavy elements we don't know what their properties are we could think oh maybe it's a gas but if they last for a microsecond how do you even test that or so uh so they could actually find out what the properties are uh which that in and of itself would be would be very very cool so bob if these elements at the islands of stability are so stable why don't they exist in nature <laughs> Because the, the well, the energy required to uh, to create them is is gargantuan. Greater than a supernova. Supernova, supernovas. Uh, they stop at uh, I think uh, element ninety one. I believe uh, ninety two. Ninety two. Is that uranium? I think it's ninety one or ninety two. Yeah. They just stop right there. So I can only assume that it just doesn't get hot or explosive enough to to do any, anything more than that. Uh, yeah. That, that, that's the only conclusion I can come to. So that's where that's but where do nature. We know they don't exist anywhere stops. else. Well, maybe some alien uh, civilizations have cooked them up, but other than that, they're pretty confident that they are not found in nature, Un- unless there's huh. some there's some physical process in nature that we just are so unaware of that could that could do that. Uh, they're pretty confident. They seem pretty confident that past ninety one or ninety two, it's you're outside of nature at that point. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, the Great Courses. <laughs> <laughs> Love them. Right, Steve, Love are them. all the courses made in Scotland? <laughs> I'm sure some of them are. So, guys, there's a new service that the Great Courses is offering. Ooh, yep. The Great Courses Plus is essentially a streaming service, and SGU listeners can get access, completely free access to this for one month for free. And right now they're offering a very popular course, which you can watch absolutely free, called The Fundamentals of Photography. It's filmed in partnership with Nat Geo, and it's taught by professional photographer Joel Satori. Yeah, this is, you know, if you take pictures, which most people do, and you've never taken any kind of photography course, I really, really recommend this. It's amazing how with just a little bit of information, you can dramatically increase the quality of the photos that you take. Most people, like, don't 
compose their photos or know like what the rule of thirds are. This course like this is a great introduction for anybody who takes pictures. I highly recommend it. Guys, this is only available for a limited time. The Great Courses Plus is offering you, the SGU listeners, a chance to stream this course, The Fundamentals of Photography, a $235 value and hundreds of other courses for free. You can stream them from your TV, from your PC, from, you know, apps on your smartphones, but it's only available for a limited time. So you better hurry. So to stream the fundamentals of photography from The Great Courses Plus for free, you must go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptic. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptic. And the plus is the word plus, P-L-U-S. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time? Yeah, so last week I played for you my year closer sound. I had a little fun. I played this noisy. Um, I'm quite sure that at least three of you guessed what that is. That's easy. easy. Boing. (laughs) Boing. What is that? Boing. I have no idea. Is that Bob popping a boner in a rubber room? (laughs) Boing. I have no idea. He says it's easy. What is it, Bob? The cage. You're right. That's a sound effect from the pilot episode of the original Star Trek series, The episode is called The Cage, and the interesting thing was that William Shatner was not in that episode. No, he was not. They had an actor uh, called Jeffrey Hunter was playing the first captain of the Enterprise called Christopher Pike, Captain Pike. Some of the uh, cast that made it to the original series TV show was in that. Like, of course, um, Leonard Nimoy was Spock. It was a very weird version of Spock. They modified Spock quite a bit from that that episode to the the pilot episode to the first real episode. But that was uh, the sound of Captain Pike throwing himself against this really this clear, almost see-through rubber shield that was keeping him inside of this cage. And it was a fantastic episode. Yeah. A great way to start off the series. Major Barrett Barrett was also in it. Uh, oh, that's right. Scotty she was, was in it. it. Yep, she was on the bridge. She, yep. she was number one. He, she was like his uh, second in command, Pike's second in command, and that was a bold move in the '60s. And they they wanted <laughs> they wanted to get rid of her, and they wanted and to get Spock. rid of Spock. And he totally fought for Spock. Thank God he did. Get and, rid of uh, the guy with the yeah. ears. <laughs> so uh, the person who guessed first, Glenn Alert. I didn't re- realize his last name was Alert, but it's not spelled with with an A. Uh, he said episode uh, for episode 547, Captain Christopher Pike trying to escape from the cage. I guarantee you that Glenn is uh, is probably in his 40s. <laughs> oh, well, gosh, yes. Yeah, so. Because, Kara, how many uh, episodes of the original Star Trek have you seen? None. I've completely tuned out this whole conversation. I have no idea what's going on. On to something that hopefully Kara will like. So this week's (laughs) Who's That Noisy? Check this out. What is that? Oh, it sounds like it didn't finish. I kept it short. It went on for much longer than that, but I just, you know, I you got the essence of what it is. Sounds like a Doppler yeah. shifting something going on. So if you have any any ideas on what that is, or if you have any awesome noises that you've run across in your life, please, please, <laughs> please send them to WTN at the skepticsguide.org. Happy New Year, everybody. All right. Thank you, Jay. 
All right, Kara, what's the word? I'm excited about the word this week. I don't fully understand it still, but I think I, I think I have a decent handle on it. I'm no chemist, so bear with me. The word this week is fugacity. Yes, you heard me, fugacity. What are you, uh, any guesses from the I know what, I know what it means. It means it's a fake guess. You know what's funny is that <laughs> it actually Fugazi. does kind of Fugazi. <laughs> it does kind of involve gas, but n- not because uh. of the way that it's spelled. Doesn't it? Doesn't it mean evanescent? It does mean evanescent. Ah, so cool word. Think about the word fugue, right? When you hear yeah, the word cosmic fugue, fugue, what does it remind you of? Carl Sagan reminds you of running away, fugue, oh, well, leaving, too. going fugitive. away, a fugue state, a fugitive, exactly, a fugue state. So fugacity actually has two different meanings that I love words that mean something differently in kind of general parlance or general literature than they do in scientific usage. So just like you said, Bob, uh, if something is fugacious or if it has fugacity, it is passing away quickly, it's transitory, it's evanescent, it's fleeting. But more specifically, when we look at that from a scientific perspective and even more specific than that from kind of a thermodynamic and chemistry perspective, what we're talking about is actually a type of measurement. But that measurement sort of does refer to the general definition of fugacity. So this is a tendency of a substance. Usually we're talking about a fluid and oftentimes we're actually talking about a gas, which is a fluid to move from one phase to another or from one site to another. And as we get more and more specific into this definition, we're actually talking about the tendency of that gas or sometimes liquid, that fluid, to escape or to expand in order to meet equilibrium once again. And so the fugacity of a system is actually almost synonymous to a pressure measurement within that system. And what we're looking for is the pressure value that's needed to make the properties of a non-ideal gas satisfy the equation for an ideal gas, which sounds crazy, but all an ideal gas is, is kind of the way that a gas, you know, should behave because gases are really complex and do lots of complicated things in chemistry. So if we were just to like do shorthand back of the napkin math, we would say this is what a gas would do under certain situations. That's an ideal gas. In reality, a real gas or a non-ideal gas is a lot more complicated than that. So the fugacity of this um, system is actually the pressure needed to make the properties of a real life gas satisfy an equation for an ideal gas. And what we're really looking at is how quickly that gas dissipates or how quickly it leaves the system because that's what gases tend to do. Now, if we're going to talk about the etymology of this word, where it came from, of course, we said already fleeing or likely to flee. That was as early as the 1630s. Uh, it's from the Latin fugasi. Or, like you said, Jay, Fugazi, (laughs) which works for me, very punk Mm. rock. And that actually means apt to flee, timid, shy, transitory, or fleeting, which comes from an earlier form, which is Fugere. Forget about it. Forget about it. It's more Italian, but okay. So, Fugacity, you think you could use it in a common conversation? The technical version of it? Probably less so. Not, <laughs> Maybe. Uh, it doesn't come up that often. Yeah. No, it doesn't come up too often. But I think it's one of those cool things where you know that scientists are saying this, but you could probably use it in a much more poetic way, like blowing this popsicle stand. All right. We're going to do a name that logical fallacy this week. We have a 
done one in a while. These are always fun, fun sections. Kara, have you have you done a name not logical fallacy with us? No, we haven't done one since I uh, oh, since I joined. Oh boy! I don't even really, gosh, the last time that I deeply studied logical fallacies was when I took logic in college. I was a philosophy minor, and mm. I was really into logic for a while. Um, and kind of the structure of an argument. And I am so scared that I've forgotten everything I know. Good. All right. So <laughs> class is open again. This one comes from our Facebook page. Now for background, on our Facebook page, I linked to an article essentially claiming that the notion of learning styles is a myth, you know, because it is. Uh, <laughs> now by learning styles, what I mean specifically is the notion that some students prefer to learn through visual media. They're visual learners. Other students are auditory learners and other students are kinesthetic or hands-on learners. Right. Yep. That's that's the the core of the learning style hypothesis, and the notion is that if you teach visual learners in a visual medium, they will learn better. Now, this has been incorporated into education for decades, with teachers presenting material in multiple ways: visual, kinesthetic, auditory, in order to accommodate different learning styles of different students. The problem is that this is not based on any supporting science. There's been a lot of studies. There's tons of studies of learning styles. Unfortunately, most of them are not questioning the premise of whether or not learning styles exist, whether it's a real phenomenon. They just are you know, looking at downstream implications of it with the assumption that it exists. The few studies that are well-controlled and that are asking the question, do learning styles actually make a difference, generally show that they make no difference, that there is no advantage to teaching children in their preferred style. Now, by lo- the preferred style is what a child says they prefer to learn in, like visual, auditory, whatever. But So if a child says, I prefer to learn visually, and you teach them visually, they don't necessarily learn the material any better than if you teach them in another way. There doesn't seem to be any justification for spending limited resources on testing kids to see whether what kind of a learner they are and in presenting uh, information or topics in the preferred style of individual children to individualizing to learning style doesn't seem to be any benefit to that whatsoever. We're not at the point where we could say that we've totally closed the book on that because there isn't a lot of the kind of research that would really directly answer that question. But what we do have doesn't support it. Certainly, it is premature to expend resources, uh, limited resources, catering to this hypothesis that has not been demonstrated. That is the consensus of the experts doing research in the field. That is the, the current conclusion based upon the evidence that we do have. So I published and linked to an article that was not, it wasn't a scientific article, it wasn't a technical article, it was just a, a lay article talking about the idea that learning styles are a myth because they have not been established. Even though they're broadly accepted, broadly used, they've never actually been demonstrated scientifically. This is a topic that I've read about before. I'm very familiar with it, so I knew that the basic thrust and conclusion of this article was correct. What's interesting is that there are a lot of teachers out there who firmly believe in learning styles because of confirmation bias. Yeah, Yeah, confirmation bias. And then their own anecdotal experience. Yeah, anecdotes. Yeah, they're, they're... if you start with the assumption that they're real, then you you could certainly convince yourself that, that they exist. So what do people do 
when they are confronted with scientific evidence which contradicts <laughs> or fails to support something that they believe anecdotally to be true. Well, there's a range of responses. So I want to highlight a few of the responses that I received on on our Facebook page. Unfortunately, a lot of our listeners, good skeptics, are on there, and they're often pr- providing the good information. But, you know, it's a lot of – we have a lot more followers on to our Facebook page than we have listeners to our show. So I think there's a lot of people who are not necessarily skeep, steeped in skepticism who are reading our links and responding to it. Um, it's actually a great source. Yes, I mean, reading Facebook comments is like, you know, you got to – have a thick Sleeping skin on glass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here we go. So here's one response. There was a commenter said, you really did your research on this one. That was sarcastic. You just took the word of one literature search study. They didn't actually study anything except paper. <laughs> so what's the problem with that statement? You understand what he's saying? He's saying that this was a re- this was a, uh, a review of the, the research. So it wasn't actually a study. It was just a review. He, in, a, in the same person, a later comment said, "A review can never disprove a scientific theory because it's not evidence; it's just a review." Uh-huh. Yeah, but it, it could assess the quality of the, the real studies that have been done. Yeah, exactly. Well, it helps you get a bigger picture of what's happening in the scientific community. Yeah, so there's it's a non sequitur, you know, because <laughs> a review of the evidence is the evidence, right? I mean, it's reviewing the evidence. Yeah. So it, it just it, it's not true to say that a systematic review is not scientific evidence. It is one way of presenting scientific evidence from more than one study, you know, by from multiple studies. So that's just not correct. There's also a straw man in here and he's making an unjustified assumption. He's assuming that I was taking the word of this one paper that I was linking to. Mm. When in fact, this is a topic that I've read many sources on and was already very familiar with. I was just linking to a, an article that was reflecting the consensus of opinion. Okay, let me go on to the next one. The, the comment commenter writes, hang on a second. As a 30-year teacher here, a couple caveats. One, this premise could be reduced to everyone learns the same way. Not true. Number two, it presupposes that students will do just as well in learning information acquiring skills in an 80-minute lecture instead of being presented the material in different formats that work different modalities. Not true. And number three, there is also a mountain of evidence to show students have learning preferences as opposed to learning styles. It is true that one's learning style does not have good predictive powers like a good scientific theory should. Just because one is a visual learner doesn't mean she will need that modality to learn the next new thing. However, teachers absolutely should present material in different ways because we do all learn differently. Different cultures, different families even value a wide range of acquiring skills and knowledge. That got 278 likes, that comment. Yeah. Hmm. Whoa! I spotted some straw men in there. That's yeah. this is a field of straw men. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Straw field. Why can't they be straw ladies? They could be. Okay. Straw Just ladies. <laughs> From now on, they are straw ladies. <laughs> straw straw gender neutral. Yeah. Strong. They're straw things. Straw beings. Yeah, straw beings, straw aliens. <laughs> that, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> straw entities. So, I think I just got an idea for next Halloween costume. Oh, how about <laughs> how about straw tomatons? Straw tomatons. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Good job, Eddie. Thanks. Yeah, I once had 
my waiter refer to as a waitron. You ever hear that word, waitron? Is it gender <laughs> no. neutral? No. Sort of waitress or waiter, just a waitron? That's right. horrible. That's weird. Oh, my God. I can't waitron. I think waiter is gender neutral, isn't it? How about... <laughs> Soon it'll be waitobot 5000. Yeah. No, like, it's like actor... Like, I know a lot of actresses that call themselves actors. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, the so whole point. Do, is yes. it's, it's gender actor. neutral. Like, let's just use the same word for both. Yeah. Okay, straw man it is. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> straw entity. So, it, it is not premised on the notion that everyone learns, learns the same. Saying that learning styles do not convey an advantage is not dependent on the the notion that there are not differences in the way different people prefer to learn or learn best. Not at all. People can learn very differently. What it means is that varying this one specific variable doesn't have measurable benefits. There was actually even one study that showed that it might be detrimental because putting a student out of their comfort zone may actually engage them more. So forcing them to engage with material in a way that they're not, that is not their preference may be better. But again, we don't have Mm. enough evidence to conclude that, but that's just as plausible. And there's just as much, there's actually more evidence to support that interpretation than the idea that students will engage more in their preference. So, but again, it doesn't mean that, that people are, are all the same. Not at all. The other thing is that they, then also the straw person of, uh-huh. We're saying that by not presenting information in different in, in a way that caters to learning preference, that we're just going to give an eighty-minute lecture. It's not saying that at all. And the the next point was that there's an advantage to pre- presenting material in different ways. Again, that's a different point. And I, again, I pointed this out to this individual. I said, in fact, the evidence supports that for an individual. If I present to you information in multiple modalities, you will retain more of it. So if I give you an auditory lecture, I combine that with uh, a visual aid with some tactile interactive component. Each, each thing you add, people learn more and retain more. With the best – actually, you know what the best modality to add is? Uh, hmm. Hacking into the matrix. <laughs> short of hacking into your to your cerebral cortex is uh having them teach it to somebody else oh oh yeah 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 that's definitely true well, who, who was it einstein that said if you can't explain it to your grandmother you don't understand it yeah right <laughs> yeah no, the ability to explain something well so anyway i explained this to her and or to them, I can't remember if it's a female or not. And they doubled down. They refused to, ah. to, they refused to, mm. teaching something in different modalities does have an advantage, but it's not because you're catering to individual differences. It's because everybody learns better when you engage them with multiple modalities. And then she tries to say, well, then what's the difference? The difference is that the, is the underlying theory is wrong. The underlying theory that you're championing is wrong. And in fact, how you go about it is wrong. I don't have to test students. I don't care what their preferred learning style is because there's no proven advantage to that. But if I, but that still means that you need to be a dynamic teacher who uses multiple and creative approaches to, to conferring information. The other thing is, is that by emphasizing learning style, you, it actually is distracting away from other variables that are probably more important. It also assumes it uh, takes the, the teaching out of the context of what you're teaching. So I don't think you could even answer the question is like, what's the best medium to teach something until you know what that something is? 
right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that. yeah, if, if I'm going to teach you math, that's not the same as teaching you history or yeah. as teaching you anatomy, right? If I'm teaching you anatomy, of course, visual aids are going to be critical. I don't care what your preferred learning style is. The the right. type of information I'm conveying probably has much more to do with what is the better medium to use than <laughs> right. your preferred learning style. Right. Can you yeah. imagine trying to teach anatomy with no pictures? Yeah, right? Oh my God, it'd be so hard. <laughs> Close your eyes. I'm an auditory <laughs> learner. Yeah. Picture, <laughs> yeah. picture the kidney. Or how yeah. about using oh kinesthetics to teach math? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just feels like a three. It, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense. You So you want to cater to the type of information you're conferring <laughs> and also the you know the, whatever resources you have available maybe the skills of the teacher and if there is an effect there it's overwhelmed by all these other things and it's it's unmeasurable which means it's not worth worrying about mm-hmm. all right one last thing this is hilarious <laughs> this guy wrote SGU please review the studies I linked and come back when you have more than a mag share to contribute so basically saying, you haven't done your research. You don't know what you're talking about. He wanted me re- to review the studies he linked to. You know what he did? He what? typed in learning styles into Google Scholar and then provided a link to the resulting search, which had huh. 3.4 million results. Get to work on that, Steve. Yeah, so he literally <laughs> said, read these 3.4 million studies and then get back to me. And then get and probably back to me. the vast majority of them will be about how they can't find a link. Yeah, right. So or well, they can't find any effect. Then most of them are actually irrelevant. Most of them are not studies testing the premise of these yeah. learning styles. They're them. just talking about it, but not testing it. I looked through the first couple of pages and there was nothing relevant to the actual question. So I've pointed this out to them. He never really addressed the criticism that I and many other people, you know, other people were more mocking than I was. Um, some guy said, you know, the, the best response was one, probably one of our listeners wrote back and said, mm-hmm. yeah, before you comment on this any further, you have to read all of my links. And then he mm-hmm. typed the word stuff into Google Scholar and <laughs> produced the resulting. <laughs> awesome. Then he did come back with a study, with one specific okay. study mm-hmm. that had absolutely nothing to do with learning styles. It had the term <laughs> oh, learning wow. styles in the title, which is, I think, probably oh. all he wah, wah. All, they didn't get past that point. But it was actually about different, a different concept. It was a, it was, had nothing to do with auditory versus visual versus kinesthetic. It was just different aspects of learning. And it showed there was no difference. So it was irrelevant <laughs> and negative. <laughs> so I said, first of all, what all you did, you just demonstrated you don't understand the research <laughs> and you're not reading past the headlines. So the irrelevant link <sighs> is a classic thing to happen on the internet, you know, not just Facebook. And also the link to the vague link to just like multiple different studies. And then there's also the ploy of, I'm not going to do your research for you. You go, like when you ask somebody, Oh, you just made a specific claim. Can you provide evidence to back up that claim you just made? And they go, well, I'm not going to do your research for you. You should search for it. It's like, dude, you made the claim. We're just asking if you have any evidence to back up your claim. Uh, of course, you know, that they're doing that because they don't have the evidence to back up their claim. So in any case, very interesting to see the way that people avoid the actual evidence. A lot of people also responded by saying, 
I know that this is bullshit because my anecdotal experience, my experience as a teacher tells me this is real. So I don't care what the scientific evidence says. You don't need science to prove something that I know to be true. You know, it's like I, I linked them to my article on confirmation bias. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, actually, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Is that a fallacy? Confirmation bias? Or is there a fallacy that's linked to confirmation bias? Confirmation bias is it's not a fallacy. It's a bias. It's, yeah. it's a tendency it's to huge. seek out, it's remember, huge. and accept information which confirms something you already believe. You're very comfortable And with, reject yes. or explain away or ignore information which contradicts what you already believe. It's a very. But if somebody says that in an argument, if they say, I know this to be true because. Yeah, the argument from personal experience. Yeah, I guess that's it's yeah. I'm trying to I'm see I'm trying to relearn my logical fallacies right now. So I've been looking them up and I know I mean there's like a circular argument that can be made there like I know this to be true because it's in my own head or something like that. Like I know it to be true because there is truth in it. I was trying to figure right. out if there were any other fun logical fallacies in any of the arguments, but they did just seem to be a shitload of straw men. Yeah, the, well the she the, the second one did throw in another one. She she started out by saying as a 30-year teacher so that is an implied argument from authority. From authority, yeah. yeah it's like, my mm -hmm. anecdotes trump the scientific evidence because I've been doing this for a long time. Sorry, mm -hmm. doesn't hold Can't water. Do that. Nope. Yeah. Very interesting. I do recommend that our listeners take a look at it. We do link to a lot of interesting studies and some of our own articles and other articles on our Facebook page. And the comments are a hoot. I mean, they really, you know, it's the Wild West with skeptics <laughs> mixing it up with, with people who are decidedly not skeptical. It, if you want to play the game of name not logical fallacy, there is a bottomless pit of logical fallacies in the comments of our Facebook page. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Squarespace.com. As you guys may or may not know, my personal website is on Squarespace, and I absolutely love it. I was really excited to build a website a couple of years ago, but didn't know where to start. And when I decided to go with Squarespace, it was such a relief because I have no coding capabilities at all. I do not know HTML, but I'm able to just drag and drop and make beautiful galleries show all of my videos and everything is really easy to do all in one place. Yeah, the great thing about it is they have the, the templates that you can choose from and they're all professionally designed. So you're going to get like Kara's website, you're going to get like a top end looking website by just selecting one of the templates, putting in your information, selecting what you want on your website and it's pretty much ready to go at that moment. And all that, you get all that for $8 a month and Whoa! you'll get, yes, Jay, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code SGU to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks, Ev. No problem. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. I challenge my panel of experts, skeptics, and critical thinkers to suss out which one is the fake. So the running, we always give a give, give a running tally for the first few weeks, then we lose track. <laughs> Bob is at zero percent. Everyone else is at a hundred percent. This week it's uh -huh. easy. <laughs> Are you ready for this week? Bob's just waiting to hope that the tides turn this week. All right, here we go. Item number one. 
A newly published paper suggests that globular clusters would be a likely location for extraterrestrial civilizations. Item number two, a new study finds that there is no negative correlation between hours of work and relationship satisfaction for dual career career couples. And item number three, researchers have found a strong correlation between homophobia and the belief that sexual orientation is a choice rather than biologically determined. Kara, go first. A newly published paper suggests that globular clusters would be a likely location for extraterrestrial civilizations. I have no idea if that's true or not. I love globular clusters. They're the most fun thing to look at through the telescope that I recently visited cool. at um, Mount Wilson. Cool. Yeah, oh, I the yeah it was amazing. The 60 inch, it was really fun. And when we all saw the globular clusters, we died. Like we were like, this is amazing. But I have no idea if... Um, if anybody be living in them, let's see, a new study finds <laughs> that there's no negative correlation between hours of work and relationship satisfaction for dual career couples. Ooh. So sorry for the double negative there, but just yeah. to make sure that I'm not confusing anybody. So this means that increasing hours of work does not worsen relationship satisfaction. Okay. I don't know about this one. This one I'm sitting on. Um, and then researchers have found a strong correlation between homophobia and the belief that sexual orientation is a choice rather than biologically determined. That, like, hands down is totally science. Yeah. <laughs> like, that All is, right. like, no question for me. And so if that turns out to be the fiction, I'm going to be pissed because that seems like total science in my mind. So it's really between the globular cluster and the career satisfaction, but... I, I'm going to have to actually say that the globular cluster is also science and that the career satisfaction one is the fiction because I can't imagine that, or I'm sorry, not career satisfaction, but relationship satisfaction. I just can't, as somebody who works a lot and who is with somebody who works a lot, I cannot imagine that working many, many hours, both of you doesn't put some stress on the relationship. So I'm going to say that... um the study that says there's no negative correlation is the fiction. Okay, Evan? Regarding the correlation between hours of work and relationship satisfaction, uh, I tend to agree with you, Kara, that there there must be a strain occurring here. I mean, unless, unless these couples uh, don't get along all that well, and it's better that they're apart and only see each other sort of once in a while between, hour, between hours of work. But although I'm, I, I think that that might be the curveball involved with this one. I don't think so. I think this one is pretty straightforward. And I, I have no problem with globular clusters and likely location for extraterrestrial civilizations because well, I mean, what the hell? You, where else are that you're going to look besides? You know, why, why wouldn't globular clusters be a good source for that? And yeah, homophobia, I, I'll tell you, sexual orientation. I can't wait to be uh, taught, Bob. So. You, I'm I'm anxious to hear your thoughts. Uh, I, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the uh, dual career one, I think that's the fiction. Okay, Jay. Yeah, the globular cluster one, it just makes a lot of sense, right? That if an, if a species, an alien species, like had the ability to pick where they want to live, then sure, you pick an area with densely packed stars. So there's lots of planets around those stars, which means lots of resources. So that one seems like a no-brainer. Moving on to... The second one about the relationship thing, like, yeah, anybody that works a lot of hours and doesn't see their spouse that much, I think, knows inherently that this, this puts a lot of strain on the relationship. So I really do think that one's the fiction. Okay. And Bob? Yeah. The problem with the globular clusters okay. for me 
is that, I mean, globular clusters are old as dirt. I hey. mean, well, actually far older than dirt. They're, I mean, they're, they're many, many billions of years old. So therefore, they'd have a lot of population one stars, which would mean they'd be very low metallicity, uh, meaning that they're, they're, you know, there probably wouldn't be a hell of a lot of planets there. I think that's a, a fair take on on that topic, um, and that all makes sense to me. But I suspect there's a there's a way out for that one. It's, that just seems too easy for them to find. Well, that's true, but blah blah blah. It's still a decent location for uh, to look for extraterrestrial civilizations. So I don't have. I, I suspect that that's what's going to happen with that one. The other ones, yeah, I agree with a lot of uh, what people have said about it. I really don't have too much new to add. So I'm going to I'm going to go with the crew and say that the uh, the relationship one is fiction. Okay, so I guess I'll take these in order. A newly published paper suggests that globular clusters would be a likely location for extraterrestrial civilizations. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Yeah. Yay! So, That's cool. How do they get past the Yeah, so it, essentially what the paper was writing about is addressing the reasons previously given for why globular clusters would not be a good place for extraterrestrial civilizations. And Bob, you hit upon one of them, that uh, there are old stars and therefore, there's low metallicity. However, what they say is that so far, our exoplanet surveys, there doesn't seem to be much of a, of a correlation between the generation of the stars that we're looking at and the existence of Earth-like planets. They do not show a tendency to prefer stars rich in heavy elements, whereas Jupiter, cool. Jupiter-like gas giants do prefer stars rich in heavy elements, interestingly. So they say that there absolutely could be Earth-like planets around uh, these ancient stars in the globular clusters. Uh, another objection is that, well, with the stars so close to each other, on average, they could be one twentieth of the distance between the Earth and Alpha Centauri. Sweet. Like a trillion nice. miles. Ooh, you could hmm. actually visit in That they in would some be cases. constantly going close to each other and kicking planets out of their solar system. So the planets would all be, would all Jumbled. be in interstellar space, would all be rogues. Said, well, Rogue. well, the stars that are in the globular clusters still are the old stars, which means that they're brown red. Dwarfs. They're red stars, yeah, or, or not not quite brown dwarfs, but they're at least red stars, which means they are very dim. Which means that an Earth-like planet in the Goldilocks zone would be very close to its parent star, mm-hmm. and would would be snug and not be knocked out of its orbit, or have a much lower chance. Chance of being knocked out, they could they hmm. could be stable over billions of years. So the the uh, the red giant protects the planet. Well, because yeah, in other, in other words, if a planet were in the Goldilocks zone of a red planet of a red star, mm-hmm. it would be very very close in and therefore not as likely to be kicked out of its orbit. So it would be stable over a long period of time. I see. They also talk about the fact that a civilization developing in a globular cluster or occupying a globular cluster would have a really easy time in terms of interstellar communication and interstellar travel. Sure. Because the distances are a lot, lot smaller. In fact, it would be plausible. They said like the, uh, the Voyager probes would already be one-tenth of the way to the nearest star right. if it were in a globular cluster, yeah. So we're talking 0.2 light years away, which is a, for every star would have, on average, another star 0.2 light years away. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, exactly. And radio communication, said it, said it would be like communicating between Europe and the New World in the 1600s, you know, by ship. Wouldn't uh, be too different. So right. they said that 
you know, we shouldn't ignore globular clusters if we're in our surveys for alien signals that we should actually look at them uh, because they would might they might be quite homey for extraterrestrial civilizations. Hmm. Still, all speculative. You know, no, not talking about evidence for anything. Just thought experiment about how likely or how plausible it would be. Okay, let's go on to number two. A new study finds that there is no negative correlation between hours of work and relationship satisfaction for dual career couples. You all think this one is the fiction. And this one is science. Oh, oh my God. Is it? Sweep. Yeah. What? You yeah. tricked this us. This one is science. So this was a surprising uh-huh. result because the obvious notion is that if couples work a lot of hours, it puts a lot of strain on the relationship. But they, to the researcher's surprise, they didn't find that. Now, there was, again, one caveat in there, dual career couples, right? They were looking only at dual career couples. So both both members of the relationship are working. This one wouldn't necessarily apply to a single career couple, but they didn't research that. But in any case, what they found was that um, even though couples who worked longer hours had less time together, that they made the best of the time that they did have together so that they, quality when they, time. when they did have time together, they, it was real quality time. And, mm. and I guess, you know, there's also the idea that because both members of the, of the relationship are working, they both understand the sacrifices you have to make and they just deal with it. They make the best of the time they have together. They're both sort of invested in the relationship, but they also both are invested in their careers. They balance the two things, and they're okay with it, and it, there wasn't any signal in there. There was no correlation between the amount of hours working and any kind of measure of stress uh, or conflict in the relationship. So that was, mm. it was a surprising result, but in retrospect, it you know, kind of makes sense. Say that. No negative correlation. No Thought negative maybe correlation. Even just a little negative correlation, but no <laughs> Yeah. They compensated mm. for their time lost with their partners by making the most of the time they have after work. That's what they found. All mm. right. Mm. Which means? Which means that researchers oh have found a strong correlation between homophobia and the belief that sexual orientation is a choice rather than biologically determined is the fiction because the results are actually not exactly the opposite but didn't support that conclusion. Uh, what they found was that there really wasn't much of a correlation there. Uh, in fact, when people believe, whether or not they believe that homosexuality uh, is a choice rather than biologically determined, wasn't a determining factor in their level of homophobia. You have to put it into the context of their other beliefs. So it's actually the other beliefs that may have be more determining. Oh, like if they're religious or something like yeah, that? Yeah, or like the, do they, there are other factors such as whether or not they are judgmental about sexual promiscuity, uh, whether or not they believe that it's deviant, you know, whether or not they think it's biological or, or a choice. If they think it's deviant, nonetheless, that tends to trump the belief about whether it's biologically determined. Now, just to make sure that, um, there wasn't other studies which showed this, I just, I did some research into the, the question about um, the factors that correlate with homophobia. I came up, I found another study that listed nine factors and they did not mention the belief that it was a choice rather than uh, that it was innate. So I, it, you know, I obviously didn't have time to do an exhaust. It's hard to f- prove a negative, right? So it's hard to do yeah. an exhaustive enough search that I can't find. There was never a study anywhere that showed that. But what 
it certainly didn't doesn't come up when you when you search on that topic as any as a common or top finding and this study didn't show that in fact it showed it suggested the opposite that there isn't a correlation that there's other factors which seem to be to be more important and then the other research it did supported that by listing a lot of other factors but not that particular beliefs so that doesn't seem to be really driving it um, driving whether or not people think that homosexuality is acceptable or not. So here are some of the factors that they did find, and this is in a different study. They're less likely to have had personal contacts with lesbian or gays. They are less likely to report having engaged in homosexual behaviors themselves, which makes sense, are more likely to perceive their peers as manifesting negative attitudes. Um, so there's some peer pressure there. Uh, are more likely to re have resided in areas where negative attitudes are the norm, um, are likely to be older and less well-educated, are more likely to be religious, are more likely to express tra traditional restrictive attitudes about sex roles, are less permissive sexually or manifest more guilt or negativity about sexuality, are more likely to manifest high levels of authoritarianism and related personality characteristics. No mention of are more likely to believe it's in its uh, choice. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. So that, that, that went against the grain, which why it made a good item for science fiction. Yeah. Shows my sure bias right there. Well, sure does. Yep. Sure been, does. We've all been exposed. <laughs> ah. Yeah. So kind of that was a, kind of a sort of a theme this week. All three of the items kind of went against the grain, went against the, what you might assume, you know? Yeah. Oh, my first sweep of the year. Ah. <laughs> Let it be the last. Hundred percent didn't last long. Didn't last long. <laughs> All right, Get back to a hundred percent. Yeah, next year. It, does, it doesn't work that way. Wait, we get we get a mulligan, don't we? There's no extra credit. No, there's no there's no redos. There's no no no. Phone a friend. There's no uh, uh, get out of jail free card kind of deal. No, nope, nope. Straight percentage. Uh, no. All right, Evan, do you have a quote for us this week? Going to kick off 2016's first quote by a fellow we all know that we uh, admire for his body of work and the many things that he has said and written about. And someone we actually have not quoted, I don't think often, or it's been many years since we did a quote by this fellow. Here we go. We privileged few who won the lottery of birth against all odds. How dare we whine at our inevitable return to that prior state from which the vast majority have never stirred. That was written by Richard Dawkins. Yeah, it's, it's, I've heard other people express that idea that, yeah, we've all won the cosmic lottery. Yes. By being born in the first place, by existing. But, mm -hmm. but the one problem I have okay. with, it, with this is it's just hard to think about those who never existed. What does that even mean? What is someone who never existed? I yes, just, I think the whole that, the whole thing is a cop out. It's ridiculous. Okay, so let's just lay down to our mortality, do nothing about it, yeah. and and just wholesale accept it. You know, like I, there's there is something to be said about the the value and the quality of human life, and and not only should we live a healthy life, but we should live a, as long as, of of lives, I think, as we could possibly live. But he is right it's in that it's in your inevitable return to not existing. You, you may extend your life, even if you extend it fantastically, at some point you will cease to exist, period. That I guess I relate, true. I relate to this quote because I f sort of figured this out very early in life, and it's something I became very comfortable with, in a sense, that life is 
is in fact precious. It is a, a great privilege to be alive and to experience everything that is alive. We are the lucky ones that, that did make it to life. Then yes, there, there are, even though Steve, I know it's hard to quantify or, or even, you know, tabulate what is non, what is non-existence or people who have not lived. But still, I think it gives us an appreciation for the fact that, hey, we're, we're only here once. You get one shot at this and make the most of it and enjoy it as much as you can while you're here. I actually think it's a rather positive sentiment. And so it is part of a larger quote of his. Actually, it's from uh, his book, Unweaving the Rainbow, Science, Delusion, and the Appetite for Wonder. And I, I, I find it, I find it reassuring. And you don't need to be afraid or want or worrying your whole life about what is afterwards or beyond. Just take care of yourself and, and the ones you love in the here and now. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you. Happy thank New you, Year's Day, Doctor. 2016. And Woo-hoo. until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.